First Peter chapter 2, <clears throat> and we're going to start in verse 9. If you're physically able, will you stand with me as we read God's precious word? You're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if, because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults and you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you, that you should follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return, and when he suffered he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you, have, you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair and wearing gold or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner in former times the holy women who trusted God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord whose daughter you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. That's the word of the living God. May you be seated. Thank you so very much for standing. Appreciate that. We're trying to stay in context here and just be ever mindful of our context and use the outline that we've been using to go through First Peter here. This is a timely word. I cannot imagine a word that speaks more timely to the time that we're in. That's the reason we know, one of the reasons we know the Bible is a supernatural book because it's a transcendent book and it speaks to every age regardless of where we are. But this is more up to date than today's paper. We praise God for the revelation of His Word, and we want to talk about and just go over for just a minute the outline that we've been following. For those of you who've been with us while we've been journeying these past few Sundays through 
First uh, Peter. You'll recall our outline, and if you can help me with it as we go through it, and let's uh, revisit that so we can, again, stay in context here. But when we, we started in chapter 2, in verse 9, the first part of that verse, we celebrate there what the Bible celebrates, and that is what? Our position. Our position in Christ. Here's what the new birth has done. Here's what it means to be in Christ as opposed to being in condemnation in Adam. And then in verse 9, in the latter part of verse 9, and picking up in verse 10, the second part of our outline is praise. From position evokes praise. Not to make those things true, but because those things are true. It's the power of biblical thinking. Praise in the life of a believer is informed. We don't just praise for the sake of it. We praise because of the truth of it. And our praise is predicated in truth. So position, praise, and then where do we go from there? The next P in verses 11 and 12. Posture. And the posture is that of surrender. Surrender. That because this is true and we praise you for it, we surrender to the truth that follows. Not to make that true, but because it is true. And he calls for a deeper level of surrender beginning in uh, verse 13 and follows through on it and talks about the terms of surrender. And we've observed by looking at it that the glue that holds the rest of the book together and the terms of that surrender is submission to authority. All right, we looked at submission to authority because the Bible discloses it first, the government authority, civil authority in verse 18, 13. Then it calls for submission to employers on the behalf of employees. That's verse 18 and following. And then this morning we're going to look at the second part of our messages here beginning in 3.1 of wives submitting to husbands. Then it talks about church life and then it talks about in Chapter 5, verse 5, the younger submitting to their elders. That's the terms of surrender. This is a big deal. Everything in the Bible is a big deal. But we come to this section of Scripture and we continue to follow this theme, and that's this. We have taken this outline and we've taken the place where we are, and we've called this part one, two, and following, and so on and so forth, that Jesus Christ is seen in our submission. And that as you look at chapter 3, verse 1, and we talked about last week, and we went into some history about the fallout of the fall. And we examined from the very beginning in Genesis when sin entered into this world through the sin of Adam and Eve, that part of the fallout of the fall, when our Lord spoke to the woman, He said, your desire will be for your husband. Now, when we looked at that last week, we realized by coupling that with the same language it was used in the next chapter when it was talking about Cain and Abel and that, the, the, that sin was trying to overtake Cain so that he, he would be motivated to slay his brother. It says sin uh, desires you. It wants to rule over you. And so by taking those two texts and putting them together, Part of the fallout of the fall is that the wife would want to rule over the husband the way that sin wants to rule and control our fallen nature. We struggle with that. This is the wife's struggle. It's not unique to some wives. It's not like some wives don't struggle with this. 
and some do. It's part of the fall. It is a result of the fall that infects womanhood. Now, the encouraging part about that is, is that we can't look at one another and Ladies, you can't look at one another and say, well, I have that problem, but so-and-so doesn't. By the same token, you can't look at them and say, they have that problem, and I don't struggle there. It's a struggle that's encountered by every woman. And we talked about the fact that for God to move in and kill and slay our flesh, He uses submission to authority to do it. Now, when it says, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that word submissive means submissive. Now, we can toy with that, and we can, we can contort and do everything we can to fit the spirit of the age in that text and try to you know, get in there somehow or another and climb in there somehow and do whatever we can with that word. But that word means submissive. It means to stand under as if in, in, the, in, the, in the context of military order. And we talked about the fact that looking at these areas of submission makes us battle ready. An unsubmissive wife is fodder for the enemy. And you know what? The problem with most of us as Christians is that we're believers on parade. We're walking down Main Street and we've got our dress blues on and we've got guns that you never would use in battle that may not even have bullets in them. And they're just for show. They're for pomp and circumstance to kind of rattle around and impress people and look shiny. But we need believers who are battle ready, dressed in fatigues with guns with bullets in them, who are engaged in the fight. This is why we resist. We'd rather watch the battle than to participate in it. But praise God, hallelujah, the unique thing about this battle, a unique thing about this battle is it has already been won. Praise God for that. And we kept on looking and we see that Jesus is our pattern because he submitted to the Father's will just like we're to. Jesus is our power too. Here's what we celebrated last week. Think about this for just a minute. Just pick it up from last week. As far as I know, the only place in the Bible where the gospel can be preached without saying a word and there be the prospect for regeneration is through the power of a submissive wife. Charles Spurgeon had to preach the gospel. Other preachers have to preach the gospel. God has ordained through the foolishness of preaching to, to advance the message of the gospel. But yet here alone, right here, even the scriptures say, how are they going to hear unless somebody sent? And how are they going to send unless somebody sends them? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It doesn't mean that if a wife is married to an unsaved man that he doesn't listen to and respond to the gospel. But his entree to the gospel comes at the heels of a submissive wife. That is powerful. Only one spot in the scriptures where the gospel can be preached and have hope of redemptive activity in the life of another is to the power of a submissive wife. Oh, dear ones, that's power. That, that takes womanhood to the highest level 
that it could have possibly ascend to. Do you see the sham of the feminist movement? Do you see the rank and file deceit of the feminist movement? Do you see how the spirit of this age, the Jezebel spirit, who is nothing but Satan himself, has infiltrated our ranks in order to mar the power, the testimony, and the worth of a submissive wife? It's a shame. It's a shame. That should be the case. And that is expected in lost people's families. But it should not be the case in the family where there's someone who's saved. It says be submissive because, dear ones, without a word. See, if, if a wife converts to Christianity and her husband doesn't, and she's following through her faith. It could be a source of embarrassment for the lost husband. And yet the wife, rather than nagging and preaching, through her nagging and preaching, preaches through her quiet submission. And there's promise and hope for redemption. I've seen this happen in ministry. Since I've been in the ministry, I have seen this happen. I've seen where women who were in troubled marriages with husbands who were acting in ways that are inexcusable, but yet were lost because lost people act lost. And so they act that way, and the wife nag and call for change and try to talk him into change, and then finally encounter the Scripture and are willing enough to let God speak for himself and back off and submit. I've seen husbands get saved on the heels of that. This is powerful. This is powerful. It says they obey the word, and without a word, they can win their husbands by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. A submissive wife fears God. As a matter of fact, the fear of God motivates and empowers her submission. A submissive wife fears God. And her fear of God motivates and empowers her submission. So much so that God can work through that kind of humility and that kind of meekness and that kind of trust to wield a witness of His Son. And here, dear ones, is what is at stake. We talked about last week. Somebody's got to be in charge. Somebody in a home has got to lead. Anything with two heads is a monster. Somebody's got to lead. In order for there to be order in the home, in order for there to be peace in the home, you've got to have a leader. But this is far bigger than that. The practical concerns are there. But the transcendent truth is, is that a woman who submits to the leadership of her husband preaches the gospel to her family and her community every day. And we talked about last week, the reason is, and don't lose sight of this, the reason is, is because it's a picture of Jesus who is equal with God and not, did not regard equality with God as something to be held on to, but humbled himself and put himself under the authority of God the Father. And in so doing that, purchased you and I. And the wife, as Jesus is equal to God, is equal 
to the husband. They're equal. The wife and the husband is every bit as, are as every bit as equal to one another as Jesus is equal to God. But yet Jesus was willing to not hold on to that, but he was willing to come under the authority of God the Father, humble himself as a bond slave, take on human flesh, become one of us, and the only one who was qualified to purchase us from the bowels of hell and the consequences of sin by facing sin on, its, on his own terms, face to face, and nailing it to the cross was Jesus Christ. You see, we can listen to the devil or we can listen to the Lord. We can listen to the prompts of this world and the God of this age, or we can listen to Jesus Christ, and we can pander to our flesh, or we can operate in the Spirit. It's one or the other. When Christians submit according to the dictates of God's Word, we silence the critics of our faith who might allege that we're out for something else. When Christians submit to God-established authority, and can I ask you a question? According to the Word of God, what is God-established authority? All authority. There is no authority but from God. And when we submit to authority, we silence those who would criticize our faith because they realize our motives are different than what they otherwise thought they were. It says, accompanied by fear, don't let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair and wearing gold or putting on fine apparel. And this time, some of the women in this culture would have big, 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 big hairdos. And inside those hairdos, they would put elaborate jewelry in them and interweave it all through their hair. And they would wear fine clothes to indicate that they're of prominence and means. But when you get inside the church and you have people who are without means and you flaunt your means in front of them, you're in trouble from the beginning. It doesn't mean, ladies, that you shouldn't dress as good as you can address modestly. Let's don't toy with that word either. We need to dress in a way that calls attention to our God and not ourself. And you know the difference between the two. You know the difference between the two. It says, come and let us celebrate what He's doing on the inside of you rather than being enamored with what's on the outside of you. Come, let us see through your submission the beauty of what's on the inside. Because God said it from the beginning. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. It doesn't say mere, it says merely. Hey, listen, just be wise about it. Just be wise about it. Dress in a way that doesn't call attention to yourself. But dress in a way that calls attention to your Savior. Dress in a way that, yes, looks appropriate and is favorable to your husband. 
dress for him, yes. But at the same time, at the same time, remember that you're dressing for him. Let it be the hidden person and the hidden beauty of a heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. The gentle and quiet spirit comes on the heels of the submissive wife. And the reason she's gentle and the reason she's quiet is because her conduct speaks for her. Her conduct speaks for her. And guess who it speaks for? It speaks for the gospel. You could either call attention to yourself in outward adornment or through an inward grace of submission you can call attention to Christ and His gospel. That's what's at stake. That's what's at stake. And this has been perverted and messed with and mocked and ridiculed and laughed and made fun of and you've been treated like property by this society. We expect the God of this age to act that way. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob does not act that way. Outward depends on endurment. And you're left with things you have to buy, purchase, and spend money on. Inward adornment comes from godly character. What would you rather be known for? It says that. Let that be your reputation. Let that be your the word on the street about you. Quiet, gentle spirit. The boisterous, loud woman is aligned with the proboscis woman in the Bible. The gentle, quiet. It doesn't mean you're not supposed to say anything. Don't take this and pervert this. Let's don't be funny with the text or mar it or be irreverent toward it. You know what that means. Just a gentle, quiet spirit that your actions speak on their own. This might be the case somewhere in the Bible, but I don't know of it right now. But I don't know that we as men have a guarantee of something that we can be and it be precious in the sight of God. you imagine that? you imagine getting up every morning and knowing that through your submission that God in heaven looks down and says, you are precious to me. That's precious to me. That's precious to me. That's the sweetest thing to me. That's an aroma that rises up into the nostrils of heaven as a sweet fragrance of God's Son. When you cook a lamb, it makes a sweet smell. And in the offering of the Passover at the time of our Savior's death on the cross of Calvary, they were cooking lamb all over Jerusalem. And it was a picture of the sweet smell of that sacrifice rising up into the nostrils of a just God who is also a Savior. And that's exactly how He regards your submission to your husband. It's a sweet-smelling aroma. Sadly enough, the opposite is true. To be rebellious and contentious is a foul odor to our God. Your conduct can either contradict the gospel or your conduct can confess the gospel. That is it. It boils down to that, dear ones. 
Your conduct can either confess the gospel or it can contradict it. If you're an unsubmissive wife, you are contradicting the gospel. You're saying with your actions, you might believe it and say it with your profession, but with your actions, you're saying, I really, in a practical sense, don't buy that Jesus is God who became a man. I, in a practical sense, I'm not, I'm not into that level of surrender. I'm, I'm, I'm not into that. I, I appreciate the work of the cross for me, but I care little or nothing of the cross in me. Oh, oh, if through the power of the Holy Spirit and His Word in open receptive hearts, I beg God for this this morning, early this morning, that this would fall on hearts where there are ears to hear. The potential you have for the gospel and the potential of generations in this room, just in this small room with this small flock, is enormous. It's enormous. It's mind-boggling. It's God-ordained. It's big. To say a Christian woman is an unsubmissive wife is like saying, this is a clear, cloudy day. For a Christian woman, for it to be known of her, just outward adornment, but a contentious spirit is an oxymoron. It's the same spirit. It's the same spirit that when Peter got caught up in things and he looked at our Lord and said, Lord, that's not going to happen to you. They're not going to kill you. And he turns around to him and says, Peter, devil, you get away from me. Get behind me, Satan, because you have not got your thoughts set on the will of God, but on that, your appetite. Nothing less than the gospel is at stake. It's inside ornamentation. Inside ornamentation. It is precious. Let's keep on looking. For it in this manner in the former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Look at Ruth chapter 3 verse 11. Boaz saw something to this woman. I just want you to look at it right, very quickly. Ruth, chapter 3, verse 11. And now, this is, this is Boaz speaking to Ruth. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do to you, for you, all that you request. For the people of my town know that you're a virtuous woman. What was Ruth known for? Being good looking? Her foreign accent? 
her catching on to the culture quickly, her intellect. No, Boaz said, you know what? I'm going to respond to you because word's out about you and your reputation is you're a virtuous woman. Wow. Wow. Precious in the sight of God, dear ones. Precious in the sight of God. Look at this one. As Abraham obeyed Abra as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you are good and not afraid with any terror. Let me say this to you. Regardless of what society says to you, regardless of what your flesh says to you, and regardless of what the devil says to you, don't fear. Don't fear. Regardless of what the world, flesh, and the devil say to you, don't fear, ladies. You submit to your husband. You say, oh, but Lindsay, well, what if he's this? What if he's that? What if he's the other? I'm just telling you, we just got delivered up the way it's there. There are no qualifiers here. I mean, the kind, gentle, benevolent, seem to have a word from the Lord all the time, seek the God all the time, and everything you want him to be. I don't see any qualifiers there. If he says, I want you to go rob a store, I want you to go rob Publix at, at gunpoint, do we have to discuss that? Come on. 99.9999999% of the lives that we lead don't fall into that category. Sarah, it is recorded in Scripture in Genesis chapter 18, if you'll look there with me, in verse 12. Genesis chapter 18, verse 12. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. He's talking about her husband. My Lord. That doesn't put the husband on the level of the Lord. But it ascribes to him the authority that you recognize and submit to that was given to him by your Lord. You're a daughter of Sarah. Let me say this to you. The feminist movement is a dirty trick on women promulgated by the devil as we talked about. But Sarah didn't buy into it. Sarah must have been strikingly beautiful. Probably so because it's 65. She was 65 years old when she was taken by Pharaoh for his harem. She was 90 years old when the thing, same thing was repeated with another king at 90. And he's he wants her to be a part of his harem. So at 65 and 90, she must have looked like she did when she was 25. She must have been a strikingly beautiful woman. But therein did not lie her strength, and therein doesn't lie yours. All of you are beautiful. Every one of you. You adorn us. You adorn us. Just take a look at a picture of my house before I got married and what it looks like now. I'm serious. Oh, it was a piece of junk. And it's not the it's not a palatial place now, but my wife has graced that place with pictures and stuff and this and that. We painted it different colors and all that. You walked in there before, there was nothing but carpet and a couple of crates to put my food on and a filthy couch. And that was it. But the woman's touch, we need your touch. It's invaluable. We're we're crass and nasty and filthy and all those things we can be. 
But the woman's touch at all levels of life is celebrated and needed by God, and it's an adornment to our world. Praise God for it. Every one of you are beautiful. There's no such thing as an ugly woman. But Sarah, at those senior years, was sought for by those kings. I'll tell you this. She died when she was 127 years old. And the Bible records when she died that Abraham mourned and wept. It was as if he was inconsolable. He sought for a place to bury her. A special place in the promised land, by the way, to bury her. There are two women that are mentioned in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. One of them is Rahab. You know who the other one is? Sarah. Sarah. Now why did she obey Abraham? And why did she call him Lord? Why did she submit? Did she submit because Abraham deserved it? Or did she submit, submit because her God deserved it? Did she submit because Abraham deserved it? Or did she submit because she saw God deliver them out of paganism into Christianity? The first idolatrous family in the Bible that's mentioned in all of the Bible is the family of Abraham. He went from an idolater to the father of the faithful. He's the prototype of a believer. Abraham. He is given credit for three major faiths in the world. Islam, Jewish faith, and Christianity. Abraham is known all over the place, and we know the only real one is Christianity. But Abraham was a big deal and a big shot in the New Testament because he's a prototype of all who would follow, including you and I as believers. But flanked by him was a submissive wife. And by that submission, they were able to follow God, obey God, and watch God put a supernatural baby into her womb who was the Father, humanly speaking, of our Lord. And the promises were made through her and the fruit of her womb. You could explain Ishmael's birth at Emory, at Emory University at their, in their medical school, but you cannot explain the birth of Isaac. A preview of coming attractions when God would visit a little Jewish girl and say, you found favor in God's sight. I'm going to put my son in your womb. Hallelujah. See, in some transcendent way, Sarah knew what was at stake. There's a little girl in our neighborhood. I saw her with a, uh, a, a, a T-shirt. It said, girls rule and boys drool. That broke my heart. That broke my heart. Because this is my vision. I could just see Satan toying with her. Like that. I got you. I got you. One day you're going to wind up where I wind up. And if you worship the God of this age, you'll wind up where he's headed. And that will offer no comfort to anybody who's there. Treating them her like a piece of property. Girls rule. And girls rule and boys drool. That's straight from hell. You know what? Girls submit. Men die. Listen, we're not going to forget the man because the Bible doesn't forget the man. But I'm not going to play those jokes like, well, you know what, now man, yours is coming. Nothing like that. We're going to be reverent toward this text. This is serious business because the gospel is at stake. You see, Sarah's calling Abraham Lord was her decision you will not find anywhere in Scripture where Abraham went, Woman, call me Lord. 
I want you to know something. Ladies, the degree to which the man fulfills his leadership is up to the wife. The degree to which a man is able to fulfill his leadership is up to the wife. You know why? Because in order to lead, you've got to have somebody who is following. Now, if that's challenged, and it is in every home, you're not unique, none of us are unique. One or two things usually happen. Either the husband is stubborn and obstinate and there's confusion in the home and no peace like Eric prayed for a while ago. Peace in our home. What a great prayer. Thank you, Eric, for that. Or the husband will just start giving in in order to keep the peace. Lays your greatest temptation as subtle as it may be is to attempt to take over the reins without appearing to do so. attempt to take over the reins without appearing to do so. Because see, what you say is not what counts. What you say is just part of the equation. What counts is what you do. He loves you so much. He's got a wonderful plan. Did you know, there's, let me tell you another thing that's so much at stake. I'm praying. I'm, there's there's prayers that God's given me specifically for this church, and I try to I try to pray according to that because I figure God God knows better how to pray for this church than I do. But I'm praying that God's going to raise up out of this fellowship some daughters of Sarah, some daughters of Sarah. But say, so you know what? I fear God. Fear God. The reason I fear Him is because I know He loves me. He died on the cross and purchased me. And those precious little girls that you're raising could be used by God to display the gospel of a world that desperately needs to see it. More powerful than the greatest preacher who ever lived. That's a big deal. Now, I know this well enough to know this. And again, with the husband, the greater burden is on the husband. You're to submit. We're to die. We're to love you as the way Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. But isn't is order in Scripture significant? And if you look at the parallel passages in Ephesians 5 and Colossians, it's always the wife that's addressed first. Because again, the degree to which the husband is going to be able to fulfill his role as leader is dependent upon the degree to which the wife submits. And even if there's a leadership vacuum, your husband's not doing right, don't take matters into your, your own hands. Just give that to the Lord. And say, Jesus, I'm giving it to you. I'm done. Uncle. But I know there's some that need to repent this morning. And we need to be mindful of the generations that are coming. Our generation, in large measure, in the church, is just taking one more lap around the wilderness. And most of us are dying off, and we'll do that in the wilderness. I hate to say that, but that's the way it's been in the American church. I'd like to believe, and I do believe, I do believe, <laughs> that we're going to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. And I do believe that our children, 
and the ones that we lead to the gospel, regardless of their age, will be able to cross over into the promised land instead of just staring at it with wonder and awe, but never experiencing it. Don't buy into it. This is just the way I'm wired. This is just my personality. This is just what you're saying is, what if you said, you know, I just have a propensity to steal. I, you know, I can't help it. I go in the grocery store, I just pick things up. I mean, it's just me. You're not in the flesh. The flesh is in you. But you're not in the flesh. And you owe your flesh nothing. It was killed on the cross of Calvary. And you could walk in this. If you can't walk in this, I quit. I'll walk out that door right now, get in my truck, and go back to the banking business. I quit if you can't walk in this. If I can't walk in this, I quit. I wrote it down a while ago. Hey, the music worship this morning, let it, every bit of it speak to you. Let every bit of it speak to you. Do you know what it says? Listen to what it said, the music worship this morning. He take, He breaks the power of canceled sin. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! He breaks the power of canceled sin. The sin's already been canceled and it need not rule over you. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God for that. The power of God is the gospel unto salvation to everyone who believes, not achieves. And it's powerful enough to save you now, to save you back then, and to save you forever. I know we're getting late. I'm sorry about this, but I'm going to share this before we move on. I'm not sorry about it. I don't mean that to be irreverent. I'm just saying, just hang with me for just a second. I'm an only child. I know that explains a lot. Uh, I'm cutting up. There's nothing wrong with being an only child. It's a great thing to be an only child. And it's a great, great, it's a great thing to have 60 brothers and sisters, and it's a great thing to have none. It's a great thing to have three or two or whatever. It's whatever God decides for you and your family. But I'm an only child. And my dad's father came to saving faith late in his life. And it was already my dad was already bent the wrong way. And he was committed. When I get out on my own, I'm gonna do what I want to do. Well, when people who are committed to get out on their own and do what they want to do, you know what they do? They do what they want to do. And it's usually not about the feet of Jesus. So my mother took us to church every Sunday. So we're in this Ford LTD. It looks like a giant tissue box. And, um, and and we go to church every Sunday morning. And my mother, thank God in heaven for my mother. She was going to see to it that we were there. She was going to see to it that we were there. She was going to see to it that I heard the gospel. She read the Bible to me. She modeled Christian faith to me. My dad was, I know he's in heaven right now, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend. I didn't pretend at his funeral. He got saved in the later part of his life. Thank God for that. But most of his life, the world had more of his heart than Jesus did. So we would go to church every Sunday morning. My grandmother, my mother, and me in the back in the back seat of this tissue box. And I can remember repeatedly, over and over, over again. My mother was the third of three daughters. She came 15 years after the second one. She's the baby of the family. When she was five years old, her dad died, and my grandmother went to work to support them and work all her life sewing and working at the bakery and every whatever she had to do to get it to, to do things. And they were impoverished. 
And my mother, although she loved all three, my grandmother, although she loved all three of her children equally, she had a special place in her heart for my mother because she grew up without a dad. Okay, I'm sure that all her hopes and dreams for a husband will came into question when she married my dad because he was very selfish, very self-absorbed, and he would sleep on Sunday morning. I'll never forget it. Every Sunday morning, he would sleep on Sunday morning all the way to time for lunch. We would get home. My grandmother lived a block over, and we would go over to her house, let her off. She'd get the chicken that she'd been making that morning or whatever she'd been making, and she'd grab all these plates and walk through an alley, and I could hear her. I could hear her coming up the carport right now. I could hear it. And her come walking up with all that food in tow so that she could serve my dad lunch when he'd been laying on the bed all that morning while we're at church. It was one selfish act after the other. My dad's God was Goth, and he served Goth well. He really submitted to his God because he served it well. He was good at it. He played it every day. But you make a he'd eat with us a real quick bite. And I know you, many of you, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying, oh, I had a terrible background. I'm just trying to give you context here. And so my dad would eat and, and make a beeline to the golf course and we wouldn't see him again the rest of the day. I was so scared all my life and wondering about my dad's salvation. I used to ask him if he was saved. It scared me to death to ask him. And he finally got saved. But I want you to know something. Here's the deal. Sitting in the back seat of that LTD, I can remember many times my mother maybe starting to say something negative about my dad or starting on something about my dad. I can remember, I can remember my grandmother going, shh, shh, don't you do that. Don't you, don't, don't you say that. You love him. Don't you say that. You love him. Don't you say that. You love him. Don't you do that. Don't you do that. Don't you do that. Let's pray. Let's, hey, hey, hey. That's your husband. Let's love him. And she would, she'd say it under her breath because she was thinking that she could get away with it without me hearing. But see, I'm like my son Andrew. He can be over playing with a Lego, and you think he's not listening. He's listening to every word you're saying. And so I'm back there doing whatever I'm doing, playing with my Legos, and I'm listening to everything that goes on. And I heard that conversation played out over and over and over and over again. And I can say that through a Sarah and the testimony that she wielded with her daughter, I did not come from a broken home. And I preached my dad's funeral. And my dad's funeral was a celebration because he's in heaven right now. And I got to see Christian faith lived out in a way that was more powerful than any sermon I've ever heard from the pulpit of the church I was raised in. You see, that, that's where the rubber meets the road. Are we going to foil all these opportunities and throw them away for cheap living? Are we going to let our appetites and our desires rule us or are we going to let the Spirit of God rule us? Which is it going to be? you got a choice. If you've messed up already, oh, dear one, just repent. That's what repentance is for. If you want to form a line of people who've messed up already, you have to get in behind me. And don't just repent to your God, but repent to your husband. And repent to your children who've had to watch an inconsistent testimony. Say, please pray for them. I'm sorry. Man who covers his sin will not prosper. The man who confesses and forsakes it finds mercy. And then, husband, if you've grown impatient with your wife, if you want her to submit just to make your life better, then you're an antithesis to the gospel as well. You need to ask God to forgive you. And let's come along beside the people, others in the body of Christ and encourage them along the way as they run the race. Stand by and eat some popcorn and say, you're doing good. Even if it's just a subtle thing and you see a wife, you know, over there struggling over, go over and pray for her and just say you're doing.
Jesus said, I love you. If you're an older woman and you've been some places that maybe the younger ones hadn't been, come up alongside them. Come up alongside them and say, don't you know, sweetheart, I love you and I'm encouraged by you and I'm praying for you because I know what you're trying to be. we got women in this church who want to be what God wants them to be. There's women in every church who want to be what God wants them to be. And so you come alongside them and encourage them. Don't criticize them. Let's love them. Let's love each other. Let's come together as a body of Christ. Because the transcendent truth is this. It's not about social order, although it brings social order. It's not about peace in the home, although it brings peace in the home. It's far greater than that. It's about the gospel. Amen. Do you need to repent this morning? Anybody need to repent? Ask God to forgive you. We'll do it right now. We'll bow right now. Bow right now and say, Jesus, I'm sorry. You know what? You know what? There is? You know what? There's a principle that goes around with repentance. And that is this: your repentance will be as notorious as your sin. Everybody who's aware of the sin needs to hear about your repentance after God does. If it's real, they will. You don't have to be told that. They will. You'll be so happy to be forgiven. You won't try to cover it up with your pride anymore. You say, "You know what? I'm sorry." He'll forgive you. You know what he'll do too? Give you the power of a canceled sin. Wow. What a God. Amen.